Alright, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Play Date. Uh, we hope you guys have been having a wonderful week, wonderful life, wonderful month. Uh, we are here to discuss an amazing play with an amazing guest. Julia, why don't you take it away? Yes, we are so thrilled that joining us today on the podcast is filmmaker, songwriter, and co-host of the Musicals with Cheese and Dear Friends podcast, Jesse McAnally! Woo! That's me! Welcome! <laughs> Welcome, Thank welcome. You guys for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. This is amazing. I've been such a fan of the Musicals with Cheese pod for a while now, and I'm oh, yeah. so excited to have you on. I, I'm gr- glad our moms arranged this play date. Um, <laughs> I do have to be on by like nine. Is that all right? Oh, that's fine. Oh. Yeah. I'll have my, mom my mom says it's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's such Just a Just as long name. as. Okay. So my mom will drop us off, but your mom has to pick us up. <laughs> My mom get, is getting us McDonald's on the way home, though. Be good, though. What? Perfect. <laughs> Chicken nuggets! <laughs> uh, Thank amazing. you guys for having me on. And once again, fantastic title. I'm surprised no one snatched it up before you two, so this is fantastic. Well, I know Thank that somewhere so on the interwebs is The Playdate Podcast, but we are simply Playdate. Well, <laughs> you drop the the, it's neater. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Amazing. So let's get to know you a little bit, Jesse. Okay. So we each brought in our trivia question for today. Do you want to kick us off? I don't. I want to go second. Okay, it's cool. The second person. That's always the best, right? Then Katie, that's you're right. in the hot seat. I'm in the hot seat. I'm always in the hot seat. Um, all right. So I decided to do a musical themed question because of musicals with cheese. Uh, just figured this would be a fun way to kick things off. So my question uh, for you today is which of these most famous musicals, right? Like we're talking big box musicals, have I never, never seen before. We're we're talking never seen any sort of concert version, never seen it live. Let me be clear. I know what all of these stories are about. (laughs) (laughs) I want to make that perfectly clear. But (laughs) which ones have I not, which one have I not seen? So your choices are one, Phantom of the Opera, two, The Lion King, three, Wicked and four Les Mis. Oh, I'm gonna guess the Lion King. Okay, I'm gonna guess Les Mis. Mm, I regret to inform you uh, that both of you are incorrect. No, <laughs> is it Phantom? No, it's Wicked. I've never oh, seen Wicked. Wicked. Oh wow, no. that was the first one I saw. I'm pretty basic. That was Can like my see- first Broadway musical. <laughs> <laughs> Lion King was the first the first musical I saw. And that's the one I haven't seen, which is a shame because I love Lion King, but <laughs> the oh, irony wow. of it all. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. That's wild. All right. Yeah, that's right. All right. So let's take it away, Jesse. Okay. All right. I'm gonna give you three things and you have to tell me which one is the lie. Um for bones I've broken. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Alright, we got collarbone we've got wrist and then we've got ribs which one have i actually broken i mean i hope you haven't broken your ribs that's tough um um oh my goodness i'm i'm gonna guess that you haven't broken your wrist because i feel like of the three of those that seems like the the least bad so i don't know Um, I think I worded it wrong, but I have broken both my wrist and my collarbone. My ribs are still together. Okay, good. Okay, good. (laughs) Thank goodness. 
Yeah, I, I, I was a pretty clumsy kid. <laughs> I, <laughs> I broke still, four, I kind of four bones in my foot once, so I feel you. I am, oh my gosh, what, what part? I broke like three bones in my big toe and then one along, like, I forget what the name of the bone is, but the, the big bone in your foot. The long one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the bo- the bony one. Yeah, the yeah, the bony one. The bony one. But yeah, wild. I also like Kate chose a trivia question that relates to musicals, but it also relates to the show. I didn't know we had show. to be on theme. <laughs> no, we said anything under the sun. That's totally okay. When you think about it, burn this is like a bone, you know? They're all You got to burn it right off. You got <laughs> incredible incredible but i i like katie chose something musical related because of musicals with cheese but also anna's a dancer and i Mm. was a dancer as well oh my god which of you also have a relationship with a random man that will walk into your apartment (laughs) (laughs) of course not yet but it wouldn't be (laughs) off brand So, which of the following show tunes did Julia not dance to in one of her Ooh. dance recitals growing up? Good question. Good question. So, we have A, You Can't Stop the Beat from Hairspray. <laughs> B, Somewhere Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. C, Mungo, Jerry, and Rumple Teaser from Cats. Or D, It's a Hard Knock Life from Annie. I'm going Mungo, J- Jerry, and Rumple Teaser. That does not... <laughs> It does seem like I'd want kids to dance to. (laughs) I can't explain why, but I'm really drawn to it being Annie. And I think it's because that is the one that makes the most sense for you to have danced to. (laughs) So therefore, I'm going to pick that one. You're going to be a contrarian. Okay. Well, both of you are incorrect. No. (laughs) You had to do that? I know. I'm sorry. You know what it, it was? It was You Can't Stop the Beat. I unfortunately mm. have danced to Mungo Jerry and Rumble Teaser. I have the <laughs> pictures of me in the cat spandex to prove it. God, that's weird. That's, that's gross to me. I know. <laughs> that that is like a terrible choice for the people who are in charge of your your dance class. Like, why would they pick that song of all things under the sun they could possibly choose? I think I'm they just... were just like, she's a theater kid, we have a cat costume. <laughs> <laughs> tomato, tomato, when put you, it together. When you make an omelet, I guess. <laughs> That's right. When Julia, life gives you eggs. <laughs> Julie, I want to be like your parent in that moment. Like, I'm fine. I'm so excited to see her. And then I just see that and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, oh, not no. that. <laughs> I did have a big solo in Hard Knock Life, though. I, I got to do the, um, you'll clean this dump until it shines <laughs> like the top of the Chrysler building. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, why do I want to hear you say that in a serious in a serious sense? Like I want to see a stage production where you get to say that line. Maybe someday I'll play Miss Hannigan. Who knows? Maybe you will. Maybe no, you no, will. No. Watch. You're... Step aside, Jane Lynch. Right. <laughs> you got to say that line as if it's in Burn This. All right, go. All right, all right. You will clean this dump until it shines like the top of the Chrysler Building. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Brava. 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 It's Brava. Russell who? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, watching the Adam Driver, like, 
screen clips and stuff from this. I'm I'm so sad I didn't see him in this show. I know. You know, I'm going to be honest. When we chatted about doing this play, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of this play. And then when I was doing research on it, I was like, no, I, I, I definitely have because it was just revived on Broadway. And I like was looking at the cast. I was like, man, that's a stellar group of people for for a revival. Um, do you know how well it did? I mean, as well as any play revival does. Sure. <laughs> sure. Like, so not well is what you're saying. <laughs> well, the thing is, it was banking on its celebrity cast. And I think it was right around when, like, the the Star Wars, the last Star Wars film came out, where both Adam oh. Driver and Carrie Russell were in it together. Yeah. Um, so it, it had a little bit of that. And the reviews basically were just like, Adam Driver's a big man. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it is good casting, because I yes. think, like, probably the rudest stage direction ever written is, like, he's not hot, but he's sexy. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how I want to be described. That's on my Tinder page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am curious before we get into our summary and, and playwright bio, like, why this play? I, why is this the one you wanted us to discuss? Um, Just... Like, I was racking my head of, like, something that isn't an obvious answer. Something that would... Because I could have been, like, what's... what's um, any other thing, like, a Venus and Fur, which feels a little bit more in my brain. But this was just the last show I saw live on with actors, and I was like, you know what? That's all, I have enough memory of that without having to re- reread it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of weird things to point out about this play, like That's specifically right. about how Lanford Wilson is talking about AIDS without talking about AIDS because mm. it was written in the eighties. So we're we're skirting around that through a cis hetero relationship. Yes, isn't that-, that the way that all life is? <laughs> just just meandering around through a cis heteronormative relationship. <laughs> Yeah, just on our way to, like, the logical conclusion, which is LGBT themes. Yes, yeah. Right, right. Honestly, that's, like, all media. It's, like, you know, if we if we just barely skirt around the topic, yeah. we can put this under our pride shows. When, that's right. When July rolls around. Mm-hmm. And I yes. remember watching it, because it's a long show. It's yeah. three hours, like, mm. and not much happens in it. Um. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's it's a very, like, it's it's very reminiscent of um, just any sort of, like, dinner table play. Like, I'm getting tinges of August Osage County. I'm getting tinges of Glass Menagerie. The flick a little bit. The flick a little bit, where, like, it's just things that there's really not too much that happens in terms of uh, stage shifting stage pictures um and it's a lot more about just like those those relationships and those connections between the characters um which is always interesting but can be a really difficult thing to sit through sometimes and a difficult thing to read through sometimes depending on how much thought you're willing to put into it before your brain goes like wah you know a lot of subtext a lot of feelings (laughs) so many feelings (laughs) you want to contextualize my my point of view when I walked into this show saw it live, but I was invited to it very last minute by someone I was talking about um, for for this project I'm working on, which I'll be promoting later. Yes. Um, and they were like, "I just directed this show. Do you want to come see it?" Um, just a warning: it's three hours long. I'm like, I like three hour long things, so I was <laughs> knowing absolutely nothing about it. And then this play just happens in front of me, where I just have to be privy to this knowledge, and it was. Very well performed, very well directed, all those things. All the things that you want. 
But also, when you do this show well, you are very uncomfortable start to end. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, it reminded me almost of cringe comedy. And it took me a while to yeah. realize there was humor that I think I kind of should have seen it live. And that would yeah. have helped contextualize it more. Because it takes you a while to be like, oh, okay, this is, this is meant to be comedic. Right. Well, it starts out pretty aggressively. Like, you know, the first thing they talk about is they're like, ah, oh, did you hear yet? Like, about the boating accident with, you know, the person that died and we're coming back from their funeral. Like, it starts in a very heavy context. So it's, dif- I feel like in that case, it's a little bit tricky to sort of navigate th- through it to find that humor. Yeah. But it was I mean, so funny, too, because looking at the show clips, all of it was like audiences laughing. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. It's just but, got an interesting tone. Yeah, but then you've got like, a lot of it dialed into the gay best friend trope where a lot of the jokes are given to that character and like the dr- joke jokes, whereas a lot of the awkward humor, the office humor is between like pale whack ass name and Anna. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Pale right. is whack ass. <laughs> like <laughs> Whack ass pale. I, yeah. I, I don't know what I expect. It makes sense that like he was originally played by John Malkovich because I feel like that's very John Malkovich energy yeah. that he brings yeah. into the show. But yeah, I I was not expecting this when I sat down to read this play. Yeah, uh, I have to agree. How would you guys describe the plot of this story to those who haven't read or seen this play what a perfect transition i can tell you're a co-host of a podcast yes so the summary <laughs> of this play um the, the place is a manhattan loft shared by anna a lithe young dancer choreographer and her two gay roommates her collaborator robbie who has just been killed in a freak boating accident and larry a world weary funny young advertising executive as the play begins, Anna's recovering from attending Robbie's funeral, comforted by her wealthy, well-meaning boyfriend Burton, a sci-fi screenwriter whose persistent proposals of marriage Anna finds herself unable to accept. When, with sudden unexpected explosiveness, Robbie's older brother Pale bursts onto the scene. He has come to <laughs> collect his brother's belongings, but stays on to transform the action of the play and lives of those in it. Menacing, profane, dangerous, and yet... Oddly sensitive, Pale is both terrifying and fascinating, and in the end, the one who brings to Anna the unsettling but compelling love that, despite her fears and doubts, she cannot turn away. Thank you, dramatist, for this summary. <laughs> wait, Thank wait, you. who wrote that fucking summary? What dramatist! Freak <laughs> boating accident in the biggest quotation marks you can write. Freak <laughs> boating accident. Oh, wow. Um, how did Jimmy Hoffa die? Oh, it was a freak a boat freak accident. Boat accident. <laughs> In the middle of a Detroit restaurant. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk it? So, Katie, tell us a little bit about our, our playwright. Well, I will tell you that I got I got our information today from the one and only Britannica.com uh, slash biography slash Lanford Wilson, because that <laughs> is our playwright. <laughs> In case anyone wanted to know the direct URL. Um, Lanford Wilson, uh, in full, his name is Lanford Eugene Wilson, just so there's no questions there, uh, was born April 13th, 1937. 
uh, in Lebanon, Missouri, and actually died in Wayne, New Jersey on March 24th in 2011. Uh, but he was an American playwright and a pioneer of the off-Broadway off and regional theater movements, which I think is one of the coolest things that I learned about him when I was doing this research. Um, his plays are known for uh, experimental staging, simultaneous dialogue, deferred character, exposition, um, and he actually won the 1980 Pulitzer Prize for Tally's Folly in 1979. Um, he attended school in Missouri, uh, San Diego, and Chicago before moving to New York City. And from 1963, his plays were produced regularly at off-off-Broadway theaters such as uh, Café Sino and La Mama Experimental Theater Club. Uh, Home Free and The Madness of Lady Bright were both published together in 1968. And they're two one-act plays that were first performed in 1964. Uh, and he's written a ton of other stuff. One of the most famous ones that I think we all probably know are is... Uh, Bomb and Gilead in 1965, um, and his first full-length play, which was, I believe, Bomb and Gilead. Um, he's written a, a ton of plays, including Lemon Sky, Angel Fall, Burn This, Redwood Curtain, uh, Sympathetic Magic, Book of Days, uh, four short plays, collections of plays, um, an incredibly, incredibly established uh, playwright. Um, and I think that you can tell that that is true uh, through his dialogue um, in in this play and the way that it's written. Um, I feel like there's just a tone to this play that like from the very beginning, you know, this was written by a really experienced playwright. And I don't really know how else to explain that uh, in a way that makes any sense because it's, it's simply like a, a tone and an energy that, you know, I like could pick up from the play just from reading it at the very beginning. Um, so we've got a, a pretty good play on our hands to discuss today. So now let's get into this, like, critical breakdown of this piece. Critical so, breakdown. Critical breakdown. So like we mentioned in the sum summary, we open in this huge loft in Manhattan. Can't really get those anymore unless you have a lot of money. Um, <laughs> Burton arrives because he heard that Robbie and Dom were killed. And then Larry arrives. And we get an introduction to these kind of three... Um, characters who who know each other already, Burton, Larry, and Anna. Um, but the the play starts in a pretty depressing place, like we said. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a downer, frankly. And we also get the impression that Burton and Anna have have some complicated history. But she's not being very enthusiastic about returning his affections. No. Mm. I do want to say in the production that I saw, they made a very interesting choice here where uh, that character was played by a trans man. And it added a no. lot more of a, like, a history of what's changed in their relationship. So it kind of, it felt a little bit more, it added to the characteristics a little bit more. I like that. I like that a lot. Because I it, feel yeah. like... It gives what is a very thankless character in Burton's a lot more, like, character just in his existence. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of history that you then have to kind of infer about this character and about their relationship. Yeah. More than just a writer who's very quick to throw punches. Yes. Right. Well, I do right. like that they establish that, like, Anna clearly appreciates his artistry. It's just less that, like, she actually wants to be with him in a romantic, intimate sense. Like, it's yeah. like, I, I respect your brain, so mm -hmm. I'll settle for you because I like your brain. Well, it's kind of like this comfort in knowing that 
Like, I feel like, especially for people who really bond over emotional intelligence, that can often sometimes be misleading when you're trying to sort of find a partner or somebody that you kind of want to spend your life with because you can sort of misinterpret uh, the intellectual stimulation of your connection, like with a romantic connection, if that makes sense. And speaking of romantic connections, um, there I think one of the most important characters in this story, which isn't isn't even on stage, is Robbie and everyone's connection to Robbie, which mm. is one of the one things that ties every character together is that like strand and who Robbie is, and I think a lot of what Anna's feeling towards Kale later ties directly into her connection to Robbie. Yeah, yeah, and they even describe how like Pale looks. Like, nearly identical to Robbie, just in a very kind of, you know, Jersey manager of a kitchen kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) I know the vibe. Yeah. I'm I'm very, I'm very aware of the vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then we also have Larry, who's, who's here and has also, like, they describe him as just like a very average guy. Yeah. Like, you know, average attractiveness, average height, average, etc. Um, and Larry, like like you mentioned earlier, Jesse, is very much the comic relief character. Yeah. It feels romantic comedy-esque. Yes. Like, I very much immediately kind of pictured Dan Levy saying a lot of these lines. You know, I almost cast Dan Levy in my, in I my dream cast. I was cast I was very close to casting him in my dream cast, which is so funny you said that. Yeah. Although it's odd, in one of the clips I found researching, they had um, Larry played by a much older guy, which I was mm. kind of surprised by. Because, like, Anna is in her 30s, which is nice. You don't see a lot of, like leading romantic ladies who are in their mid-30s, which is unfortunate. No. Yeah. But it was very nice to see this woman who's, like, so... And they talk much more as we get into the second act about her artistry and what she's been doing as a dancer, but you get the feeling that she and Robbie were kind of, like, artistic soulmates in a way. Like, they were both right. dancers who got each other on a very innate artistic level. And I feel like that's a very real thing, too. Like, as artists, like, there there are some people that you just find, um, you know, some sort of collaboration with that really works and really gels and meshes well. Um, and to sort of have, like, that artistic partner with you, um, I think is, like, it's an interesting thing that you point up here because I think that that's something that is often felt quite a lot within the artistic realm, but, like, not something that's talked about very often. Yeah. And so this whole thing about Anna, so she went to the funeral and it's very clear that like Robbie was not out to his family or if he was, they just didn't acknowledge it. Um, Mm -hmm. And she has this whole experience with a bunch of butterflies and is is saved from the butterflies by Robbie's older brother. (laughs) It was, it's an odd part. (laughs) It's an odd part, but it also sets up like, Pale as a character before he even sets foot on stage. Like, we have a pretext mm. for him. And it's weird for, like, a, a, it's a very long section before we even get there, that first scene, which I think it's about 30, 40 minutes before we, like, even get a proper, like, introduction to this, like, mm. wrecking ball of a character. <laughs> right. So, Julia, as a question, as a playwright, how do you like that style of character introduction? 
I like, here's my thing. This is probably my spiciest take that I, I'll have today <laughs> is that I don't love the way the dialogue works in this show. I, I, I like the character introductions, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I feel like a lot of these characters have the same voice, except yeah. for yeah. Pale. Pale is like the one um, that is completely like his own thing. But it took me a while to really get into reading this just because, especially with Burton and on Larry scenes, it felt like the same character was speaking just in a conversation with themselves to me. That's a great point. That's a great point. They are, they are, and I think what's interesting too is that it's like mentioned in pretty much anything that you find about this play, how much Pale is like this eccentric character who like comes in and does everything. It makes you wonder how much of that is actually that tone of that character or just how different that character is from everybody else in the play. Because like you said, they're all written in a very similar tone. And I think, I think it's written in a way that is very, um, I mean, it, 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 it reads well, you know, it flows well, it reads well. Um, but it's just, it's just not engaging. I, I agree with you entirely until like Anna has this like big monologue in act two. Or yes. Like, that, mm. that works for me. Um, that's you setting up a character. I wish I had more of this in like the first half of the story, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Her, her scene at the end when she essentially gives him this whole speech of, we'll get to it when we get to it. But like, yeah, the, I don't, I, this is not what I want. Um, right. That told me way more about her character than like anything in the first act. Um, right. Yeah, and I feel like we never get a moment like that with Larry. Like, I feel like so much of Larry's stuff is is quips, and the, the most we get of a real, like, character-defining moment is that letter he writes at the end. Yeah. Um, but that's that's my hot take. The playwrights of the world can come be mad at me. It's okay. Um, at me on Twitter. Let me know how you <laughs> feel. <laughs> um, but so, like, how do you how do you feel about the idea of introducing a character through the text of other characters and the dialogue of other characters before that character that's being spoken about, like enters the the picture. Oh, I uh, like doing that. I like doing that. Um, I I think that's one of my favorite ways to bring in a character because it kind of sets up almost suspense of something. Um, My other favorite way is when you put all of your lead characters, like they do this really well in Stranger Things, surprisingly, (laughs) like the first scene of Stranger Things when they're having this like D&D battle is a really great way to set up these characters and their roles just because of how they're reacting to this fake conflict that they've created. Because then you know later how they're going to react when like the big bat arrives. Um, So those are kind of like my two favorite ways to introduce characters. Well, Mm -hmm. while we're talking about what you like and didn't care for in this show... Um, how'd you feel about the pacing and overall length? <laughs> too long. <laughs> Far too long. Very, very long. I might have set y'all up for that one, but... <laughs> no, it's a setup that I appreciate. Because that's the thing, like, you mentioned earlier, like, I can get down with a long show. Yeah. Titanic right. is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> take a shot. Take a shot. This is our game. Anytime we talk about Titanic or Hank Azaria, you gotta take a shot. Or Scream Now for Me. That's another constant one that pops up. <laughs> but, um... I, I, I don't tend to... Like, I loved the Batman. Like, a lot of people complained about the length of that. I thought it was great. I thought it was well-paced. Mm-hmm. But with something like this, it's it's a lot of tell and not show, which yes. works in some instances. It works better in plays than it does in film. Right. But by the same token, I feel like... Th- 
I feel like it, there could have been some some condensing of some moments. Yeah. You know, I've always said, like, the best example I have for this truly, and and I, we all know that it's a cultural landmark, but the the, the movie Mean Girls, specifically the film. <laughs> sorry. Specifically the film of Mean Girls is so perfect in its length and its dialogue where there is not a single single bit in that movie that is not important it is condensed down to like the most solid form it could possibly be where like like both of you said like i'm so here for a long play a long musical a long movie a long form of entertainment i don't care i think that's fantastic what i don't like is when there is so much of it that either doesn't need to be there or can be condensed in in ways and that's what i felt through uh, a good portion specifically act one of this play where i was like this is just we're really just we're just talking and it just doesn't stop <laughs> i i find it fascinating um like it's not even the length that's the issue but it is the pacing like, yeah um and I think that that is helped. If we look at like every production of this ever in New York, they're all led by really big actors: John <laughs> Malkovich, Edward Norton, mm-hmm. Adam Driver, Carrie Russell, Kathleen Keener, um, Ty Burrell. All these folks. Where I think maybe if you see it with an Adam Driver, and you can be like forty-five minutes into Act One and be like, "Oh, all right, celebrity in front of me. This is fun." <laughs> I can smell them. This is uh, I'm nah. having a good time. Three hours of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think could I, smell I, Adam Driver for three hours. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I, I found myself looking forward to the scenes where Pale was there, even though like Pale isn't what I'd call a likable character. No, <laughs> but yeah. Pale is vastly fascinating, and so when he's on stage, I felt like the pacing improved because he, you can. First of all, like, he can talk really fast, and it it makes sense with the dialogue. But I feel like just watching the other characters react to him is fascinating to watch. Yeah, but the only issue I have, like, that makes it discomforting, and maybe it's just because I'm, like, physically there, and, like, I can't do anything to stop it, is, like, the blurring of consent lines and whether she is in an emotionally right state to be able to give consent to this gentleman um a lot of that going on in my mm. head yeah and it's mm-hmm. happening in front of me and they're just on that couch and i'm like, ugh, ugh, I like <laughs> yeah especially yeah. the scene in the second act when like she's told him she's made it very clear that like he's not supposed to follow her into her room uh-huh. yep. and then he does and then the next morning <laughs> we see sure, him coming sure out does. with a robe on i'm like uh, i don't love that at all um, and so what, I know you, you briefly touched on this before, Jesse, but what was, what was it like in the theater watching this? Especially, you know, obviously it was a, a, a while ago, but to your, you know, like best recollection, what were some of the things you were feeling as you were watching it? Um, discomfort. I, I don't want to say boredom, but like, sometimes you can just kind of tell when you hit story points and when things are happening, which is what I'm talking about when I talk pacing is when you feel like we're just meandering and not getting to the point. Um, but mm-hmm. then when Pale enters, it's like, oh, I get the point now. So you kind of perk up and you listen a bit more. But then the discomforting side of it happens. And this coked up dude slowly stripping in front of you is just like, oh, this is this is not pleasant. 
Yeah. <laughs> very unpleasant to watch, but it's engaging. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, it honestly, like, this is going to be a, a wild comparison, but it reminds me of watching American Psycho a little bit, where it's yes. like, I am so uncomfortable, but this is also interesting. Mm. Um, I, I, that's, like, the best comparison. I, I, but some parts of The Shining made me feel that way, too, where I was like, this is uncomfortable, but I'm also intrigued. Um, mm. it, that's That's a cool, like juxtaposition of emotions to be feeling though you know like and that's an interesting thing um and it makes you wonder you know i i mean this is probably me reading way too much into it but how much of that was taken into consideration in the writing of it you know what i mean yeah that's the part i can't figure out because i I like was it was it purposefully this uncomfortable and weird or was it was that just an outcome of of the way that it was written well, I think like the like like Jesse brought up the consensual lines being crossed is where I you know I ask myself like is is this intentional? And I feel like we're meant to think they should end up together at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do. I mean, <sighs> it, it, I mean that that synopsis we said at the start made it sound like that too. So maybe you're seeing something, but I'm like. I'm literally sitting here like, this is not a relationship made to work. No, yeah, it doesn't I, look like it's going to be a successful relationship. That's for sure. I don't, I, I'm so, I struggle so much with the end of this. Cause like, I, did anyone else get the vibe that Larry was like oddly supportive of this whole thing happening? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's where my brain it gets confused because I'm like, are we supposed to agree with him? Because I don't. Or did he just hate like the other guy Burton so much that it's like, oh, this is better. Yeah, yeah, that's right, the thing. Because right. like Burton's not a bad guy. Like if some, if some, you know, from his perspective, crazy man he's never met before breaks into his friend's apartment and is like all over this woman who he is dating. <laughs> like, yeah, you guys are gonna be great. What a good match. <laughs> I mean, I, I I understand why he would kind of jump to her defense. Not saying violence is the answer, but like, you know, I can understand the the like, oh my gosh, this guy broke in here. He's trying to like, you know, attack Anna, et cetera. Like, I can understand why he jumped to the conclusion of like, I need to fight this guy. Yeah. Um, and then, oh my gosh, the second act is just the the pacing is better, but I think yes. it's just like a lot happens in a very yes. short amount of time. Well, it's a very like out and had a very good one act. I was <laughs> going to say it's it's a, it's a very long drawn out act 1 with like everything happening in act 2. Yeah. <laughs> you're like you're like by the time I get to act 2, I'm not sure I want to come back for act 2. And then you do come back for act 2 and you're like, "Well, this is where everything happens." Yeah. Like even if we were able to sp- Base that out into Act One and cut some of that dead space out. You know, at least it would give you something intriguing to look forward to for Act Two, even if the majority of the plot shift happens then. Yeah, it th- this play is a it's a good one for a podcast episode because I think it's just it's so it's just odd. It's it's <laughs> odd. Frankly, like, like it's structurally, just odd. it's it's a very like oddly structured show. Like it, yeah. Like, when you think about it, the inciting incident doesn't really happen until Pale arrives. Or you could consider the inciting incident Robbie's death. But in terms well, of, I'd like, what's happening actually 
technically happens off stage, which is her meeting um, Pale in a story she tells. In the butterfly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the butterfly extravaganza. <laughs> that do you want to? Do we want to talk about that? <laughs> Break that down a little bit for some of our listeners who aren't quite as as familiar. I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it, Julia. Oh, I no. oh, Julia. All I was you. hoping you would take it. Okay, here we go. Uh, so she she stayed in in a room at this family's house. She this is very clearly um, a dysfunctional family situation that Robbie came from. Um, like, she talks about how just awkward she felt the whole time at this funeral, how everyone thought she was Robbie's girlfriend, and because they had been living together. And so she stayed in this room and woke up to a bunch of butterflies <laughs> surrounding Don't her. we all? <laughs> happens to me every morning. For four. <laughs> and so she, oh my gosh, she runs downstairs in the nude, right? Yeah, yeah. not close. Partial nude. Partial yeah. nudity. And so Pale gives her a shirt and, like, carries her out of there. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is a horrible recounting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's just a little caterpillar herself, and he put the cocoon of a shirt on. That's right, that's right. You know, it's like one of those moments where you're like, what's, like, what's going on? See, that I would love to see on stage. I'm just waiting for the revival well, when they add that scene back in. I don't think they would, like, sincerely, it's just a weird monologue. And every actor, I've looked up a couple people doing this scene, um, struggles with it. Like, because I was just wondering, is that just a weird thing to try to describe? Yeah. Yeah. This is just frankly, like, it's just so strange. It's so, so strange. And, like, it's, it's like, one of those things where I'll never forget. This is, like, a weird tangent, but there was a movie that I don't remember. It's a Nicolas Cage movie, so, I mean, Oscar-worthy. And it was, it was some sort of movie about the world ending. It was, like, one of those movies. Oh, is it Knowing? Yes, it's Knowing. Oh, my God. The, end, the ending of that movie, like, the whole movie, everything is so normal and, like, like normal as much as a, you know, a post-apocalyptic type movie can be you know like everything's happening and it's all fine and then like the very end of the movie they're like yeah your son is like the reincarnation of adam and adam and eve and like he's gonna get captured by aliens and go start a new planet somewhere and you're like what like what just happened what does that have to do with anything we've just watched like there's no connection whatsoever to like what had happened prior to that with like that and that's like the last five minutes and you're like what like why that's how I felt when I was watching when I was reading this I was like what's what's happening (laughs) why did we add this in here (laughs) exactly you know Anna makes Pale some coffee when he arrives he's come to get Robbie's things and he like breaks down um because don't we all (laughs) well because he feels he feels guilty about his brother's death you get the sense that they weren't really close right but he like holds himself responsible in a way well we find out later why it's a little ridiculous but (laughs) (laughs) it's the quote-unquote twist of the story yeah do you want to do you want to break that down a little bit for us jesse oh sure (laughs) since i did such a great (laughs) job with the butterflies (laughs) um so allegedly i think this i forget allegedly (laughs) good Um, start it's the legend 
by Pale, where he's pretty sure his family had his brother killed. <laughs> like, that is basically what what it was. And because of homophobia, more or less. Um, and it's pretty rough. And Robbie may or may not have been involved with helping them with it. Um, he isn't entirely sure. The, it c- depends on how it's delivered. Um, but it's pretty vague. And nothing's really solidified. But boat freak boating accident? Sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Quote unquote freak boating accident. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I, I don't quite remember how it comes out, but I remember it being like, oh, mob connections, Jersey, abba dabba. Abba dabba dabba. Yeah. Yeah. And so he like. In Act One, like breaks down yeah. because he he thinks himself responsible, and that's when things take a step in the unconsensual direction, yeah. where they and and what's interesting is that the stage directions aren't like crazy explicit. Okay, at least in in that particular scene. Later, they're more explicit, but um, like I feel like the I don't even know how to describe it. But like it, like you said, it's just this like very awkward, um, like when when people. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm like going on like seven different tangents. But the butterflies, butterflies. Like the way that's the thing. There are no butterflies, and that's what I think <laughs> makes this scene so awkward. Is like usually when you set up a scene where two characters are getting together on stage, like there's a buildup that's very clear. Through both the text and stage directions. Whereas I feel like much like the rest of Act One, this is kind of like a roller coaster where there's no like direct descent. It's just a lot of ups and downs and and things are there's not like a clear line of tension that leads to the end of that scene. Or at least that's not what I experienced while reading it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Whereas like in the show One Slight Hitch, like you have two characters that are like used to be in a relationship and then they have a scene together where like it starts from a place of like yeah it's kind of awkward that you're here but by the end of it it has built to a place where like the sexual tension dam is bursting you know Mm. whereas you don't get that vibe in this scene mainly because of the non-consensual energy of it right which is and again like i i wonder how much of that is intentional and how much of that is a result of you know, this play being written in the 80s. I wonder how much of that is a result of a lack of clear subtext. Um, there's, I feel like there's a lot of, a, a lot of ways your brain could go with this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's followed up with, like, the morning after when Larry's, like, cajoling her about sleeping with Pale. And, like, he's treating the whole thing kind of as a joke. Especially when Burton calls. Yeah. And is like asking her out. Yeah, that that part really was like I don't know where where you're standing right now, buddy. I I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know where his allegiance lie. I didn't feel any uh, issues towards Burton, but I guess you you really want this relationship to end. Yeah. Um, and then Pale's like, "Oh yeah, and I have a wife and children." Yeah. <laughs> Just a little little snippet. Here's a little fun fact about me. <laughs> well, he like shows her a picture of his family. I'm like I'd, pale, pale's so weird. Um, and and that's kind of where we, we finish Act 1. Um, 
And how to, in terms of- Come back for act two, kids. Come back for act two. (laughs) Wasn't act one so fun? (laughs) Like, how did you leave act one feeling when you saw it in, like, live? Um, sincerely, I was just like, oof, where else can we go? I I felt like the narrative kind of wrapped up there, honestly, because I'm like, they fucked. That's, that's what all romance stories basically is, trying to fuck. They yeah. fucked. It's over. Um, <laughs> we can all go home. It kind of was like that. I was like, because I was partially expecting like a falsettos thing where it's like, uh, same characters, new new story, basically. Maybe we'll see something for the roommate or something about the family or something like that. But no, we just keep on keeping on. Keep um, on chugging. Act two. I, keep on keeping on. <laughs> keep on keeping on is there reveals kind of do you, does it make sense i guess um <laughs> are we satisfied yes <laughs> <laughs> very much um i do want to talk a little bit briefly about like the reviews of this because as yeah. we're sitting here i was thinking about like how did the new york times and all that review this Cause yeah i don't like even us chatting here it's a difficult show to try to either say it's good or bad um because it's more nuanced than that and every one of them are just like yeah, it's all right, but then comes this character that's larger than life, and my god, just steals the whole show, and you just, a jolt of lightning in your brain, and then you just go on for 45 minutes talking about whoever's playing Pale, whether it's John Malkovich, Edward Norton, or Adam Driver, and then they're like, mm. everyone else does good, but the fact that you have such a looming presence just lights them even more, in their shade, and I'm like, okay, all right. And honestly, like, what's so interesting about that is that, like, that's in some ways like so not a compliment like in some ways that's like a very nice thing and then in other ways all that does is say that the other it it just adds like this almost this false narrative that like the other characters like weren't engaging to watch which isn't always true it's just like an it's just like an interesting that's like always a really odd compliment and I sometimes I don't know how to take that like oh you stole the show or like oh you I couldn't stop watching you or whatever it's kind of like sometimes you're like that's so nice and sometimes you're kind of like but is it nice (laughs) or does that just mean that everything else like wasn't what we wanted it to be yeah I I feel like oh stealing the show is different than being the show like Mm, yeah I think in this case, you don't steal the show. Pale is the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, right. it, it reminds me a lot. Like, this is a, a weird comparison, but it, this is a weird show. So I I was having a conversation with a friend about the West Side Story revival. And they had seen it. I had not. But they were telling me about the fact that um, Anita's Assault is very, very graphic in yes, the revival. Yes, And... We had a very compelling conversation about intimacy on stage, specifically assault on stage, and how assault on stage, for me, is very different than seeing assault on screen. Neither of them are pleasant, but mm-hmm. in a, in a, when you are watching something on stage and you are right there with it, yes. you, you don't get to turn the TV off and leave the room if you need to. Like... You either have to walk off and make everyone else in the theater uncomfortable, or you have to sit and endure something that can be potentially very, very triggering. And one thing I explained was, like, I don't know if I would be able to appreciate West Side Story in that the story that that show is trying to tell, if that's the version of it that I saw, because 
I don't think that I would have been able to get past the assault to focus on the Romeo and Juliet story they were trying to tell. Like, everything past that point would be overshadowed by the fact that I just saw something horrific happen on stage. And Mm. similarly in this, I feel like this is supposed to be Anna's story. She's introduced to us as the protagonist. But once Pale enters the scene, we don't really... We aren't as invested in her growing and changing as we are in what the heck is this guy going to do next? Right. I, I will argue that she isn't the protagonist. She's just the point of view character. The protagonist is pale because he's got the closest thing to a change in arc and anything like that. Or maybe... I. The thing is, I feel like the author has more empathy and internalization connection with pale than it does with Anna. That's yes. fair. That's fair. Yeah, That's why she gets thrown to the wayside more often than not in what is supposed to be her own story. Yeah, I. It's hard. I, I feel like this is one of those shows that has kind of it could have dueling protagonists. Like you see that a lot in two handers, where it's yeah. like two characters can function as the protagonist in terms of plot structure. And in, I'm not describing it well, but um, I feel like plot wise. Like you said, she's our POV character, so she functions as the protagonist in terms of, like, three-act structure, which this show kind of follows, but kind of (laughs) doesn't. With the length of the show, I'm surprised it wasn't a three-act. It would split very easily into one, like, even without changing a single scene. Yeah, You know, it is interesting what you said, Julia, about um, just the idea of, like, watching Assault and stuff like that and and what that is like. And, you know, I also want to point out the perspective of what that's like to do that, you know, as either an actor or somebody involved in the production, whether you're directing, producing, stage managing, being surrounded by that on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. what that does. Um, Because, you know, like, I remember I did a production of Sweeney Todd way, way, way back when. And in, um, you know, in that show, there's obviously the assault against the beggar woman, you know, um, and it's a very graphic scene. And it's very, it's a very uncomfortable scene to do. It's a very uncomfortable scene to watch. Um, And I, I like your sort of comment there about just sort of the differences of like, how you're able to deal with that. Is it easier to deal with it on film? Is it easier to deal with that on stage? You know, and, and like, it's it's kind of like, it all fits under that topic of sort of making sure that we are casting people as true as possible to specific roles and different things. Like, you know, if we're telling, I think we, we t- chatted about this a little bit, Julia, during like our um, Angels in America uh, two-parter, where, you know, we were kind of like, I would like to simply cast people who fall under the queer umbrella um, because it just doesn't feel like the kind of play that really I would want, you know, the narrative of a, of a straight cis person to be telling. Um, And in terms of things like assault being portrayed on stage and, you know, uh, I think there's a multitude of things that can kind of fall into that same sort of category, people with disabilities, things like that, where there's this like really, really hard line that you have to sort of draw um, of of how do you do this in a way that is incredibly respectful and also makes people uncomfortable to the correct de- degree. 
I, I think the difficult part with like the idea of what is uncomfortable to the correct degree changes per person. Yes, though, the, I agree. I mean, which is what makes it so tricky. Yeah, like something like this, where you know, with this show, you have unclear consent boundaries that could be just as triggering to someone as the assault scene from West Side Story, depending 100%. on the person. And also, right. just based on performance alone, the consent can be a little bit more given by physical yeah. implications right. and stuff like that. Which, in my case, there was a little bit more of a consent granted by performance. Yeah. Uh, I can tell that that was intentionally put there by the director. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you can see that happen a lot with, like, reinterpretations of Shakespeare. Like, there are some moments where, mm-hmm. you know, for example, like, a, a one that comes to mind right away is the nurse in Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet. That scene can either be played as Mercutio harassing her or, like, the two of them are having, like, a bit of a banter moment. But it's very determined by performance and stage direction. Mm-hmm. And I'd argue, like, even the entirety of Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just all of it from start to finish. Like there's some productions that are really nailing how to do that lately and I'm really enjoying them. And then some that I'm like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> there's a great podcast episode. I think it's Shakespeare Unlimited where they talk about um, oh, I the love newest. Shakespeare Unlimited. Uh, they're amazing. They um, talk about the revival of um, Kiss Me Kate and how some things had to be rewritten for the newest production that they did. Well, mm-hmm. since we're talking about modernizing and I am musical theater guy and we're talking about changing plays from like decades ago yeah Um, what do we all think of the music man revival and how i think they change it so hard that it reflects back to bad again where they try (laughs) too hard to adapt to modern times where a lot of the points being made no longer are points yeah yeah i um you know i'm gonna be honest i i wasn't i don't like the music man i don't like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like the story. Um, I don't love what it, what it is about. <laughs> and um, when it came to the revival, I really didn't, I didn't learn too much about it. But I did know that they made some pretty, pretty big changes. And I think, I, I think it's counterproductive to make those changes if the original message isn't, isn't maintained. I mean, the only reason why is because I think, much like Taming of the Shrew, much like an interpretation and in delivery, you can change that show to get rid of any of the problematic elements from different versions. Like, take the most recent Oklahoma yeah. adaptation, where they, they made some pretty big changes without changing a word of text. It's just a very lazy director that can't work a text to make it work for modern times. Yeah. And that's... As I, I say the same thing here. Um... You can play it that way, but you got to make a choice and stick with it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like, because I think there is a way, I think that's why it makes the ending so so tough, because like if you if you change the, the tone of it using, you know, nonverbal cues, does that change the ending? In terms of, like, what we're supposed to get out of it. And this yeah. is not, like, a leading question. Like, I'm genuinely c- curious what y'all think. I, I agree. See, the ending for me has been changed by a conversation I had with someone else after that show. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Which is, 
basically them saying like pale is the same like death as robbie it's just a matter of time now and we we that is what they're thinking about in that, those final moments it's not like the happily ever after it's what do we how long we got wow that's, that's interesting fascinating. that is interesting yeah i feel like for me that reading makes the ending more meaningful yeah i agree yep especially with the whole burn this message like you know, pour your heart onto something and then burn it. Throw it away. Yeah. And I think that's also another indication of the point of burn this, where he's going to burn out pretty quick, either by his own doing or by the world around him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I like that reading a lot better. I think that... I do too. I think that adds something to the play that isn't there. Um, Whereas you can really just... you, You can take as little or as much away from this play as you want. It's not one of those plays that shoves it all in your face. Um, I personally am a fan of plays that shove it in their face, which I think makes this one a, a little bit tricky for me to connect to. Uh, but I like that that interpretation of it. Because I struggled with this show when I left it, um, which is part of the reason why I wanted to come out and chat with it, because I just have thoughts that aren't negative or positive, but just thoughts I want to spill into the world about it. And yeah. that was like recontextualized a lot of what I was feeling and maybe have to think about this a lot more. And yeah. I thought I was just going to leave and be like, well, that was weird. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause it's interesting. Cause in a lot of the press that I watched for it, they treat it like an odd couple story, which I guess if you're squinting, like, I guess, but I, it just seems like such an odd way to promote this. Cause I feel like if someone, you know, was saying, you know, this is a story about a bunch of flawed, hurt, grieving people that are thrust into a space together and and you watch how they interact under this incredible loss that they've just experienced. Like, that feels to me much more like what's at the heart of this show. Because all mm. these people are reeling. And especially, like, I, I think that, that message of it didn't hit me as hard until the end when Larry was talking specifically about Anna's dance. And when... Pale actually went and saw it and then said, like, you know, the dancers were good, but I I can't see anyone but Robbie dancing that part. Mm. Oof. Yeah. And I, I feel like that that for me, like that moment really resonated with me. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's a good it's also just a good interpretation of grief, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's a good, it's a good way of, um, kind of, it's in a way, like, it's a really good tie-in to how this play starts, uh, you know, because I think it starts very much in that vein, uh, so to sort of have that dance moment, um, and then have it brought back to sort of some of the very first pages of this play is a really good it, it's a good full circle sort of moment um, in a very in a very sad way. Mm-hmm. So let's let's hop into the more specifics of Act Two because um, yes. we're 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 in it. But I, I we had a discussion in the middle of it. <laughs> um, so we open on New Year's Eve. Anna's reading Burton's script. Things are going in kind of a um, seductive direction between the two of them, and Larry returns from Detroit. Um, and he hey. seems quite upset. <laughs> um, and then later we have Pale burst in. He's a mess. 
and he and Burton um, get into a, a kerfuffle <laughs> over over Pale's behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the midst of this of this fight they're having, Burton finds out that Pale and Anna have been sleeping together. He gets very upset and leaves, um, and everybody goes to bed. And then Pale takes it upon himself to go into Anna's room. In the words of Mamma Mia, dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah. The next morning, Pale enters from Anna's room wearing her robe and Larry's like fixing him a cup of tea. And once again, Larry's just like so weirdly supportive of these two. Yeah, he's just vibing. He's like, all right, sounds good. Well, um, he's not hot, but he's sexy, so. Yeah, he's not exactly. hot, but he is sexy. <laughs> um, and Burton calls, Anna picks it up, but then um, Pale interferes. And that's when we kind of get a, a really strong Anna scene as she comes out and, and gives him a piece of her mind and is like, we are not in a relationship. I don't know what you think this is, but it's not that. Um, and she tells him to leave. And he does. And she completely breaks down. Um, and then we have a, a scene between Burton and Larry and that's when we kind of get this full picture of this piece that she's made um, and how incredible it is. And I, I thought it was interesting. He talks specifically about like, there's a part in this dance where the guy is dancing, like just like a regular person would dance. And I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it really felt like kind of a metaphor for this play and how it's, very slice of lifey. <laughs> would you like yeah. to? Would you like to elaborate on that, Julia? Well, it's just like you know. I'm not saying these are necessarily realistic people. I mean, I, I think Anna is, but like this, this feels very just like people in a room dancing it out. Yeah. Um, and not like necessarily. <laughs> Let's just dance it out. <laughs> no, but I mean, listen. You ever got a problem? You ever got a problem? Let's just dance it out. I can't I got a confrontation. It. Let's dance it out. But I feel like it, the the dance is metaphorical for how these characters interact. Like, yes, I agree. Yeah, like it's not. I don't think it's meant to be this avant garde artsy thing. It's no, like these are no. people dealing with something in a messy way. Yeah, in a in a much different like it. It gives me. Um, Kind of like what you were saying, like, it's not, it's not done in an artistic way. And I'd say, like, an example of it being done in an artistic way is, like, in, in Red, how just, it's all, even through the dialogue in that whole play, you know, it, it really is coming from, like, an artistic standpoint as opposed to, and, and an artistic message within the play as opposed to something like this where it really is, is more of a metaphor than it is, you know, this, like, artistic showing. Yeah. God. <laughs> I, I just love hearing you guys talk. I'm sorry if I'm quiet. I'm just like, yeah, this is a smart take. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like I was listening to a good podcast for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. That's going to be our quote this. now. That we're is going to be our publicity quote. <laughs> we're doing this podcast thing right sometimes. 
I was like, man, I'm getting engaged. And I'm like, oh, fuck, it's my turn. <laughs> well, I mean, some, some, you know, background is this, this podcast started because this is what Katie and I used to do at Starbucks. We would just like go get coffee and then talk about stuff. Um, and then we were like, let's record ourselves doing it. <laughs> I mean, that that's the best way to do it. Uh, sincerely, you guys are doing great. Um, oh, thank you. I just got us off topic again. Um, <laughs> but I do have a question, and this yeah. may be a leading question. How do you think, how good do you think the food at Pale's restaurant is? Do you, like, do you think you'd enjoy it there? I mean, hmm. he's Italian food, right? That's what yeah. he has? Yeah. I mean, I I used to live in Jersey for a year. And the food is very good, um, especially yeah. if it's authentic. What I would not necessarily trust, seeing that he's the manager of the kitchen, is like how clean the facilities yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to go with a big no for me. <laughs> it's gonna be a big fat no um, on if I'd enjoy it or not, uh, because I agree. I feel like the behind the scenes is probably not great, um, but I also kind of feel like there's probably some level of. Um, complacency like within the quality as well <laughs> uh and it would probably be i think it would be like okay like just okay no bells no whistles you're not gonna get food poisoning it's just okay what do you think i feel like it'll probably be good but it depends on what day you're going <laughs> like so what i'm hearing to- is there's no consistency <laughs> yeah. in any of our in any of our takes not a consistent hey, restaurant why the fuck is he never here he seems to be like everywhere <laughs> but the restaurant that's true <laughs> and he also seems to be on drugs for the majority of this show um yeah and his family like the way he talks about his family is just like it makes me sad because I feel like it's very um, sadly realistic that there, you know, are some people they get married young and then they're like, why did I do that? And mm-hmm. the way he talks about his wife just makes me so sad yeah. for her and him yeah. and their kids. Like, and, and then like knowing all of the grief behind it and the family that he came from. It just, mm, it's a bummer, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> Frankly, it just bums me out. It just bums, bums me, me out, out a little bit. <laughs> That's my full review of this show. It just <laughs> bums me out. <laughs> it sort of bums me out a little bit. So do we want to talk about the title and, like, where it comes from, this idea? Because it's it's a Burton quote. Um, right. Where he's talking about, you know, p- put your soul on a page and then burn it. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, that's something that I actually really agree with. Um, That's like, I feel like a method of self-care in a weird way. Um, I, I, you know, and I feel like you can kind of interpret that in, in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, I think the moral of what that actually really means is, you know, be able to put your heart out onto something, but it doesn't need to be shown. Um, And it can be things that are kept to yourself um, or things that, or you need to let go of, but don't need to be put into the world. Um, and in a weird way, like, I do that a lot with, um, like, I'm not a big journaler, but I'm a big letter writer. Mm-hmm. So I'll, like, write letters to either myself or to other people in my life. Um, but they won't go anywhere. And they'll stay, and they're, like, in its own little notebook, and it stays in the corner of, you know, whatever. And 
And that is like my burning of it where it's written out and it's, it's gotten out, but nobody needs to see it. It's not for anybody. It's not even for me. Like it's just to get it out. Um, and so in a way, like that is something that I think, I feel like while the actual verbiage is, you know, about burning it, um, I think that that can be interpreted into like just a lot of ways of like healthy grieving, healthy coping, healthy habits of, um, not holding things in. Yeah, yeah, I do. I very firmly believe, like, one of the only lessons I took from freshman year theater sem was... (laughs) I can't even believe you took one one lesson away from freshman year theater sem. (laughs) But the one thing I took away is have a hobby that you don't monetize. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. That's, like, the one one advice... The rest of the advice, I don't know, I, I, I have my... I have my qualms with it, but um, the idea of having a hobby that you don't monetize is really big for me. Because, um, like, I, during the early years of the pandemic, Katie can tell you, I would just, like, sit in the corner and just, like, draw and make weird word art. Mm-hmm. And, like, it'll yeah. never see the light of day. It is purely just for me. Because it's, like, it's, like, in the way that, you know, I like film scores because it's something I cannot do. But I respect it on an artistic level. And so that's, mm. like, a hobby that I enjoy is just, like, listening and analyzing. And it's never going to amount to anything. But it it keeps that creative spark burning, even if it never sees the light of day. And it is still integral to, like, who I am and what I do. And like you said, Katie, the idea of writing a letter, like, in this play, it's specifically a letter that is just, like, the most character information we get about... Larry goes yeah. up in smoke. Right. Um, but it is... I, I like that idea of, like you said, that interpretation of, like, Pale doesn't have much life left to live. So this is his way of putting it, you know, putting his soul on paper and then setting it afire. Yeah, and there's also the metaphor metaphor of, you know, setting your soul aflame you know, that can also be something that's interpreted within that ending, uh, since, you know, there isn't that much life left. Uh, the idea of doing something like that, it could be the idea of starting something new, of um, having different adventures, letting go of the past. Like, I think there's a lot of things you could take away from that. And that I think what's so interesting about that is that that's like the one part of this play that I think you can take a lot of interpretation from. And the rest of it is pretty, like, it's just there, you know, and like, and like, this is like something that's really greatly up for interpretation on how you personally want to view why it happened the way that it did. Um, and, and again, it's kind of like, it almost feels like, you know, when you go see a musical and you're like, yes. this, this sucks, <laughs> this sucks. But then the oh, last definitely. number, the last number, you're like, that wasn't that bad. And then you leave and you're like, so did it suck or was it okay? Like that's, that's kind of how I feel like this last moment is where you're kind of like, it leaves something to be desired. It leaves something to think about. Um, but also on the opposite hand, like it, it makes you like the rest of it, like wasn't that great. So it's just like, it's just interesting. It's interesting that that also happens to be the line that's pulled uh, for the title. So what is everyone else's pitch of what happens after the curtain goes up? 
Like, what do you, th- what not forget interpretation, just what do you think is your personal ending to the story? I'm very worried about Anna, I'll say that. Um, I don't think much changes. <laughs> like, it, it sort of feels to me like, I agree, I'm definitely worried about, about Anna. Um, but I'm also, like, very curious to see sort of what the next movements for Pale are. And I can't give an actual answer to what I think happens. All I can give is like a color because I'm, I'm, I'm like seeing, I'm seeing like, it just, I'm seeing like green, like green that meshes to like a, a red. Maybe that's death. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I, I, you know, I haven't really thought about it that much because of um, just the the way that I was engaged in the play. Um, I, I didn't really think about what happened afterwards because I don't know if that was ever something that, um, that the playwright really, like I said, I'm not sure there's much left to be desired afterwards. I feel like maybe Pale gets a new job because he quit his old one. Actually, I have a pitch on that. Um, I think Ooh, Pale yes. dies of a heart attack immediately. Turns out he was going to leave the restaurants and everything to Larry and Anna. And now we got a fun best friend sitcom about them <laughs> running restaurants. Yeah! And then yeah, they, it can like be it. a seafood restaurant called Freak Boat, Ac- Boat Accident. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That'll be and, also be the title of the sitcom. Yes. Um, a play turned sitcom? Come on. We got new streaming services we gotta bring this in i love it i love it so now now that we have kind of broken this down a little bit i'm so curious about like how if y'all had you know infinite budget creative team of your dreams you know what would this show look like your you know ideal production of it hmm i mean i have ideas um just because new york 80s um it's a very white story. Yeah. So I would love to see an all black or an all BIPOC production. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be really cool for me. So I've got a pitch of cast if y'all want to hear it. Yes, yes, please. All right. So my choice for Anna. Any guesses? Ooh, ooh. I mean, I pictured Renee Lee Goldsberry, so that's my guess. Ooh. That's a good pitch, but I'm going real different. I'm going Michaela J. Rodriguez, MJ Ma- Rodriguez, <gasps> formerly. Ooh, I love that. That's yes. a choice, right? I feel like she'd it knock is. it out the park. She'd be able to add nuances where they weren't nuances previously. And I just kind of think she's a good actress, and that that's not that's pretty good as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Um, Pale. Who are we thinking for Pale? Ooh. I mean, I know John Boyega can pull like absolutely yes. wild characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the range that that man has in his soul is just amazing. Um, so I'd love to see him. I feel like he could also be a really good Burton too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of those people you could you could put in either direction and he could pull it off. That's fair, but I went in a little bit more like traditional, and I put I think Michael B. Jordan has that intensity <gasps> that fear like he's mm. kind of he, yeah i think he might be just a little too attractive but he's also scary in yeah. the ways you need him to be but yeah. he's sexy which is important because <laughs> just not hot oh he's hot he's, he's hot, hot. <laughs> <laughs> problem. 
Um, so, for Larry, I have two choices. Um, just because it's kind of the easiest one, I want to pick, like, you usually pick, that's the one where a star doesn't go to. So I'm going to pick someone from the Broadway world that also kind of has a good amount of star power, and that would be Titus Burgess. Ooh, okay. Yes. Okay. I think he'd bring a lot of interesting attitudes to it. But if we're going to go, like, star and would probably get some time off of SNL, Bo and Yang would also be I like, literally was going to say Bo and Yang. Yes. Bo and Yang. <laughs> He's amazing. Yes. He's very, very good. And then Burton. Poor Burton. <laughs> Um, you need an actor filled with charm, filled with energy to like make that character sing. I'm going James Monroe, Iglehart, be a different vibe than everyone else in the show. Oh my god, different energy, a very heteronormative energy. But yes, I'm obsessed with that choice. That's amazing, especially because of his Disney history. Like it just makes it like he was on the Electric Company too. Like he just has such a like. I, I guess, for lack of a better word, like, clean persona in terms of, like, what he does like that. I feel like that's perfect mm-hmm. for Burton. Yeah. And for a director of this, I want an up-and-coming African-American director to take this on and figure it out. I don't want, like, one of those old fuddy-duddies coming in and being like, I'm going to revive a new, an old show and make it the same. I want someone <laughs> to bring something new here. Right. So I want a complete nobody directing these actors in this show and give us something new. Yes. Hell yes. I love that. I love that a lot. Those are some great choices. My cast is like nothing compared to that. I know. I know. Our cat, I can see Julie and I share notes. So I can see both of our casts and I'm like, God, (laughs) ours suck compared to your cast. You just came on here and knocked it out of the park. Yeah, that's so good. I thought a pretty long time about this, about what I do. So I love it. I think it's great. Um, I'll do my not as good cast. Um, <laughs> so for for Anna, I would like Tatiana Maslany, who yep, most people it. would know as right. She Hulk. She's mm-hmm. fantastic. She's great. Yeah, she is. Um, seen, I, she was in Orphan Black, right? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. She's incredible in that. She's wonderful. Um, and then for Burton, I want Nicholas Holt because <laughs> <laughs> he's just like such a dude, you know. <laughs> he's yeah. just such a guy. Um, and then for, for Larry, I'd want Jonathan Bailey. Um, uh-huh. I think he Ooh. might be like a, a smidge too handsome. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think he's very funny. Um, so I think he'd be good. And then for Pale, I want either Oscar Isaac or Pedro Pascal. I think yes. either one would, uh, but Oscar Isaac would be my first choice based on his work in Moon Knight alone. Right. Um, he's amazing. Can do no wrong in my eyes. <laughs> hit me with your heart. <laughs> my dream guest i've got for uh anna i've got sosie bacon um i don't know if you know sosie bacon at all i just watched something that she was in for the first time a couple days ago she's in a new movie uh the horror film smile it's a terrible movie but she did a great job kyle gallner's in that movie i love kyle gallner yeah so is cal penn we He'd love be a cal good penn. Pale too oh my yeah. gosh kyle gallner would be a great pal um, yeah yeah. Um, but Sosie Bacon did a great job in that movie. Um, then I, for Burton, I've got Dylan O'Brien. <laughs> he was he was in our flick cast too. He was. Yeah. He was in our flick cast too. Like he's a little too young for what I'd want, but um, yeah. he could grow into you know, it. But he'll grow into it. Um, and then I've got Sean Hayes for Larry. All right. I could see it. I could see it. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised he hasn't done it already. Right. Like, that's how well yeah. I can see it. <laughs> exactly and then uh last but not least for pale i've got rami malik yeah i can see it yeah 
Very All I can yeah. think of is him in that SNL sketch where he's like, I want a treat. That's like the energy. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah, I just feel like he he's got he's got the range oh, to yeah. do that. So, you know? So that's my dream cast. <laughs> now now if we're doing old funny duddies, like I it would be really <laughs> funny if we just had old people do this. So I'm gonna throw that out there really quick. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, I'm ready for this. Hit me. Alright, Larry, Michael Short. <laughs> Um, and uh, let's find someone that's got the range. Um, what's a funny actress? Um, I feel Catherine like O'Hara. Oh yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like Pale's got to be John Lithgow. Oh, John Lithgow or Steve Martin, one of those two. Yeah! Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin. <laughs> he just come in, and then Burton, who's like the most boring. Um, Lance Henriksen. We bring him <laughs> in. <laughs> and how about how about we do a three a three parter act one. <laughs> by podcast act two boring cast act three funny old person cast you know what would be really funny if in act one they started as the age is supposed to be act two they've aged like 10 years <laughs> and act three they're like <laughs> the new game of thrones showed is looking at us and taking notes exactly <laughs> they're like how many more age jumps can we do Oh my gosh! Yes, I, that might be our funniest Dreamcast. Uh, yeah, that's a good one that we've ever had on this show. It's a really good one. <laughs> um. Well, that brings us to our calls to action section. So this is where we take what we learned from the play and find a tangible way to put it back into the world. Um. So I'm curious as to what our takeaways are from this play. I want to watch the world burn. I've got the gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch the world burn. And everyone turn mean. I mean, Pale's already pretty mean. So. <laughs> <laughs> Pale was a mean girl. You're just a mean girl, Pale. <laughs> I feel like mine... This this show made me think a lot about grief. Mm. Um, and how there's a lot of... Just like... We're very quick to to expect people to move on after dealing with grief. And so I think, like, my personal call to action is just to, like, be more mindful that grief doesn't end after a month or a year or five years. Like, it's it's something that's, you know, maybe not necessarily a constant thing in someone's life, but the healing journey is not a linear one. So that that's my personal call to action. Yeah, um, you know, I've mine was also in the same realm of of grief as well. Um, there's been I've been recently very surrounded by grief uh, between my own life and life lives of people around me who are currently going through a grieving process as well. Um, and I think it's important to be aware that there's a lot of different ways that grief presents itself and a lot of different ways. Um, that people handle that grief and just like everything, like you said, Julia, progress isn't linear and grief is not linear. And a lot of people are going to, uh, handle things much differently. And there's a lot of varying factors that, you know, play into your grieving process and your, your own current grieving situation. Um, and being mindful of that and, and being mindful of, um, 
of the fact that that also means from your own personal perspective that you have to give yourself that same sort of kindness um, and that same sort of empathy that you would give the people in your life who are going through those things. Um, so, you know, we had pretty a pretty similar one, but that is my call to action as well. I like that. Y'all are so brilliant. I'm just going to make more Mean Girls references. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> well, on, Tuesday, on Wednesdays, we burn this. I don't, I don't <laughs> in the burn book. <laughs> Oh my god, I love that uh, that idea. Where did you get it? Oh my god, I think it got incepted into my brain. <laughs> I'm not a regular pale, I'm a cool pale. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a regular restaurant manager, I'm a cool restaurant manager. I'm a cool manager. restaurant manager. Meaning I do coke and probably sweat too much. <laughs> I'm not a regular sci-fi screenwriter. I'm a cool sci-fi screenwriter. Meaning and in the realm <laughs> And in the realm of screenwriting, I know you have some really cool projects coming around the corner, Jesse. Do you want to tell that's, us about that's, those? That's right. Um, it is not too late for you to <laughs> donate to my Kickstarter for my first feature film entitled The Daughters of the Domino. It will go until November 4th, so get your money in while you can. It would mean the world to me if you donated, and you also get a bunch of fun perks, such as... I don't know, uh, DVDs and buttons and stuff, and uh, look it up. It, it's pretty good, and you get a lot out of it, too, and it helps me. Um, so if you thought I was even a little bit funny there, try throwing a couple dollars my way there. Um, that is after you subscribe to the Playdate podcast, of course. Also, if you want to follow me on all the shit, I'm on Jesse Macnow. It's spelled McAnally. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> 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 um, I also host a podcast called Musicals with Cheese, where most of you may know me, where I convince my friend Andrew once a week that musical theater is pretty cool. Um, it, we're in our spooky season right now, so we got yes. a lot of um, scary episodes coming up. I think right now we would have just released our Over the Garden Wall episode, which that's going to be pretty cool. Love it. Um, and also we do crazy other stuff, but... If you enjoy the Playdate podcast, you'll probably enjoy that, but uh, a little less educational, a little bit more um, cheesy, scatological. <laughs> little yes. if, would we would we dare to venture into the world and say that it's cheesy? Yes, yes, I would say it's cheesy. <laughs> um, guys, what is your overall thoughts and your cheese rating of Burn This? <laughs> oh, I'm gonna give it a cheese rating of six. That's a good number. That is a good yep. number. I'm going to give it a cheese rating of six. I'm giving it a mozzarella. Pretty good, but it's got some holes. I like okay. that. I like that. I'd say it's a nice blue cheese. Um, you got to pace yourself with this one. The dressing or the mm. spread? I'll say I like I like the dressing. I'm one of those like true blue cheese believers. So I'll say the, the spread. Wait, wait. <laughs> Cue the outro, guys. <laughs> And, and we'll see you here. next time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Playdate. You can follow us on Instagram at playdate.podcast for updates, giveaways, and more fun stuff. Our cover art was designed by Levi Denton Hughes. Our sound engineer is Terry Peters. Our PR manager is Noel Kreitz. And our theme music was composed and recorded by Mickey Wadsworth. I'm Kate. And I'm Julia. Keep, Keep playing. playing.